you'll remain standing and open your Bible to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there may be one uh, located in the back of the, uh, the rack underneath the seat in front of you. And um, if that's not within reach, the words will be on the screen here. We're continuing through our series in the Gospel of John, being verses 1 through 18 today. Title this message, A Helper to the Helpless. A Helper to the Helpless. Reading out of the English Standard Version, listen to the word of the Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, this is your word, and we uh, believe it is so. We open the scriptures every time with the expectation that because that is so, that you have something life-changing to say to us in it. And Lord, you know all that we bring to this moment right now. You know every person in here. You know their story uh, from as far back as they know it. You know everything going in their life right now and what awaits them, what awaits us. Uh, even hours from now or days and weeks or years down the road, Lord, you know every need on every heart and what you need to say to penetrate our hearts, uh, to cut to the very center of our being, to discern our thoughts and intentions and show to us what it is we need to see about our own hearts. And so, Lord, would you speak today your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory because this is all yours. Lord, move me out of the way 
and use my voice as your instrument today to reach your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this healing at the pool of Bethesda is the third sign of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And if you've been with us for this series, uh, you know that the, the, the seven signs, this is one of the, uh, I don't know, kind of structural elements in John's Gospel that, uh, that's unique to John's Gospel uh, over against the other three in the way that he tells the story of who Jesus is and what he has done he tells, among other things, of the signs Jesus performed, that the way that he uh, tells about miracles, um, there were many of them, of course, that Jesus performed, but that they were signs. And the nature of a sign is that it points to something beyond itself, right? It points to the thing signified. And in the case of John's gospel, those signs that Jesus performed uh, point to something greater about who Jesus is and about what he has done. And so here we see, um, among other things in this passage, it, it reveals that Jesus, who is just a man of, of pure mercy, that Jesus helps the helpless and unworthy for his own good purposes and glory. If I, if I confuse everything else that comes out of my mouth today, Go away knowing this, that Jesus helps the helpless and unworthy for his own good purposes and glory. And that means, number one, that he's not governed by human limitations. Number two, that he's not regulated by false religion and self-righteousness. Now, I am quite confident that in this room today, there are people who either fall into the category of feeling helpless and unworthy and bound by human limitations, or people who are exceedingly self-righteous, even though they don't feel that way. And there may be some who fall some into both categories. I think this is a message for us. Well, let's consider number one, the fact that Jesus is not governed by human limitations. And I want to look just a little bit at the background of this healing here, because you really see this passage uh, sort of broken down into two sections. You've got the healing in the first half of it, and then this Sabbath dispute in the second half. And uh, we see in the sort of the nature of this healing um, this fact that he's not governed by human limitations. Jesus had gone up again, it says, to Jerusalem for a feast, possibly another Passover. And he went to the, the pool of Bethesda where there was a multitude of invalids as the ESV translates it. These are people who are in some way very sick and weak, even to the point of being rendered disabled by that. Okay, so he, he specifically says uh, there were those who were blind and lame and paralyzed, a multitude of them. And uh, the other thing you might notice is that in the King James, the New King James Version, if you have that version, uh, the end of verse three and then all of verse four contain an explanation as to why they were there. It says they were waiting for the moving of the water. 
For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And then whoever stepped into it first, uh, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. So if you have the King James or the New King James, you have a reading like that in the second part of verse 3 and then all of verse 4. If you have pretty much any other translation, you'll notice uh, that that phrase is not included. And you would notice perhaps as we were reading the passage that there wasn't a verse 4 in the ESV. And so I actually want to speak to that just a moment because this can become... um, a a matter of some confusion for some, although it'll show up other places in our study through the gospel of John, and it'll, it'll show up in other places in the gospel. And one of the, one of the possible uh, points of confusion people have, and I've seen this circulate even recently, is they say, uh, you know, notice that some of the modern translations have taken verses out of uh, the Bible that are in the King James version. Those doggone liberals have taken verses out of the Bible, you know, um, and, and that actually is not the explanation. If anything, it's, it's actually the other, the other way around. And so I, I want to speak to that again just a moment. It can become uh, a bit academic, and I'm going to try to avoid that. But let me just uh, sort of explain uh, briefly. Basically, when the King James Version was translated back in 1611, there were really only a handful of Greek manuscripts available from which they, they translated the New Testament into English. Since then, there have been scores of other texts discovered, some of them very, very ancient. And generally, those older manuscripts are considered more likely um, the, the closer to the original and the more reliable manuscripts. And the oldest Greek manuscripts do not contain that verse 4 and the, the phrase right before it at the end of verse 3 about the angel of the Lord stirring the waters and so forth. So it's, it's likely one of the things that uh, scholars know happened periodically is that um, a copyist or a scribe or whatever makes a marginal notation uh, with an explanation like that. And somewhere along the way, that marginal notation gets incorporated into the text itself. So when you have newer manuscripts, uh, they appear to include a verse that wasn't there originally. And now in verse... Seven, the man says, when the waters are stirred, he can't get down into the pool in time to be healed, right? You notice, in in other words, there there is clearly some kind of belief of that sort. That what's explained in verse four, there's clearly a belief of that sort, and this is the man's problem. He says, I can't get down there fast enough to get healed. Um, And so that that appears to be the reason why they went to the pool. The point is simply that uh, it is most likely not a part of John's original gospel that he wrote, that it's something got in, that got incorporated later. Um, and so you have the ancient, all pretty much all modern translations of the Bible are, um, are based on those older, more ancient texts. And that's really pretty much just the King James and New King James uh, that differ from that. Now, if you use the King James or New King James, you continue using them, okay? Uh, And you'll see even in the New King James, there are footnotes that'll mention these variants between these texts. And you'll see it noted in every other modern translation you have. And so it's all there to be sort of revealed and studied or what have you. But again, it's just worth, it's worth mentioning so that that's not a point of confusion and that it doesn't erode people's confidence somehow in any translation of the Bible that you're reading. Read the Bible. The one that you'll read 
is a good translation, right? And, uh, and, and trust the Lord to, to speak through that. But anyway, that'll come up again as we study through the book of John. It'll come up other places in the gospel, and that's helpful to know. Moving on from that, though, let's make some observations about the healing itself, because we'll see this is um, a beautiful example of the fact that Jesus helps the helpless and unworthy for his own good purposes and glory. This, this will wreck a lot of theology that people have about how, how Jesus works, about how faith works, and all that sort of thing. Because one of the things we'll see, first of all, is that there's a multitude of people there in need of healing, right? They were seeking healing. They are there at the pool because they want to be healed. And on this occasion, Jesus healed only one of them. And then he slipped out pretty quickly, actually. And the one man that he healed did not really in any way qualify himself to be healed. Like of all the things, here's one of the things that goes around a lot. People will say uh, that, that it's, it's Jesus' will and his desire to heal everybody. And the reason people aren't healed is because somehow they don't have enough faith or they haven't exercised it in exactly the right way. And what I'm telling you is this passage in John chapter 5 will push back against this. Somehow you've got to moderate that view to account for this right here. Because he didn't heal everybody, number one. And the one he healed was not in any way the most qualified to be healed. Nothing about him. Nothing about him made him the best candidate to be healed. In fact, quite the opposite. The man wasn't seeking Jesus, didn't notice him, didn't recognize him, didn't cry out to him, didn't appear to know who he was at all. He's been in that condition for 38 years and his condition may have actually been a result of his own sin. We know that not all sickness is a result of sin. Some, there are references in the Bible that allude to that possibility. But down in verse 14, Jesus, when he saw him later in the temple, says, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, he could mean by that that uh, the, the consequences of sin are far worse than uh, his physical condition or whatever. It could have meant any number of different things. But it could have meant that his condition that he's in, that he's been in for 38 years, is the result of a sin of his. Think, for example, of somebody who goes and tries to steal another man's ox, and then he's trampled by the ox. A result of his own sin. Or a man who breaks into another man's house, and the owner of the house tramples him. Okay, I mean, there's any number of ways where this man's condition could have been a result of his own sin. We don't know that for sure. But he's been in that condition for 38 years. He is utterly helpless. If you read verses 6 and 7 there and see, utterly helpless. Where Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? And he says, I, I don't have anybody to help me. I can't get down there fast enough. I mean, he basically says yes without saying yes, but he's almost resigned to this fate, right? Do you hear it that way? He's, he's like he's there hoping against hope that somehow... He can still get in there to be healed, but he just, he, he doesn't expect that to happen. He's just, he's just resigned to the fact he can't, there's nobody there who's going to help him, and he can't get in the pool fast enough. He's, he's utterly helpless. He needs somebody to put him there, doesn't even have somebody to put him down there. And uh, the, the, the text doesn't specify the nature of his condition 
But for one reason or another, he's unable to walk. Again, it could be maimed legs from an injury. It could be some kind of paralysis uh, from injury or disease, or it could be just a terribly weakened condition. But he's unable to walk. And Jesus just commanded him to get up and walk. Do you want to be healed? Well, I don't have anybody to help, and I can't get down there. Or get up. That's pretty much how the interaction goes. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Uh, no, no prayer or pronouncement of any other sort like that. That's, uh, that, that's just Jesus commanded him. And, and, li- and consider what happened there. Instantaneously, instantaneously, muscle and tissue sufficient to carry that man were just created. A healing like that is, in some manner of speaking, a creative act. You know, we know in our, in our household, one of our sons had uh, two hip surgeries um, over a period of about five years. I mean, he's a fairly young fellow, and um, the first surgery didn't solve all the problem as it turned out, but he was uh, f- sort of functionally disabled for a period of four years or so. He couldn't stand up more than, for more than about 20 minutes. He had a second surgery that remedied the problem, and he, after some time, you know, sort of made a good recovery and is, and is sort of back on his feet and in a way. But the point is that, that even at that, that level for that period of time, and he was on his feet some, some, but everything got weak. When it came time to rehab, everything in his, below his waist was weak. Well, what happens after 38 years when you haven't walked? Apart from just a a creative act of God himself, you don't just get up and walk because those legs won't hold you. You don't know how to balance. And it's not only the legs, it's the hips and the everything. And that's what Jesus has just done in in a word, has just created muscle and tissue in those legs that hadn't borne that weight in 38 years. But back to the man himself. He didn't exercise any faith in Christ whatsoever. Unless, unless you would say getting up and walking was an act of faith. But you, you see what I'm saying? Like he didn't come to Jesus. He didn't cry out to Jesus. He didn't, he didn't believe in Jesus in any sense. He didn't exercise any kind of faith here that caused him to be healed. It was entirely the will of Jesus to heal that man that day for his own good purposes and glory. He intends to be glorified in the way he heals, in the way he saves, in the way he delivers, in the way he rescues. To whom, how, and when, and all of it. He glorifies himself in it. And clearly he's got a plan here this day. He heals this one man and slips out because there was a crowd. Not in spite of the fact that there was a crowd. There's a whole crowd of people They're seeking healing. But Jesus had other purposes that day. And it wasn't at all dependent on this man's worthiness because he was quite unworthy. It wasn't dependent on his faith because he really had none in Jesus anyway. Whatever faith he might have had was in the stirring of this water and the power of that to heal him. And he didn't even make it into the pool. 
And not only is he unworthy in that respect, but after the fact, when Jesus sees him, he doesn't express any gratitude. And he goes back and tells the Jewish leaders, hey, I found out who it was. Did you catch that when we were reading the first time? He didn't know his name. They said, who's this man who told you to get up and walk? I didn't catch his name. I don't know. And then when Jesus comes back to him and speaks to him, he goes on purpose, goes out of his way to go tell the Jewish leaders, oh, it was a guy named Jesus. I mean, that's not really the profile of a stand-up guy, right? Like if you were writing a story and you're trying to create sympathy in the hearts of the reader or a movie to create sympathy in the hearts of the, of the viewer and who want this person to be healed, that's not the guy. But that's the guy who Jesus healed that day. Perhaps there, as a, as a, uh, a pro, the fruit of his own uh, choices in some way, not a man of faith, not a man of particular righteousness or anything of that sort. And yet he's the one whom Jesus heals, one who's helpless and unworthy. And so here's part of the implication for us, and I, I have... I have high confidence that there's somebody here uh, who needs to hear this in a particular and personal way. That if you think you can't be healed or helped, or delivered or rescued from whatever it is that you're uh, burdened by right now. If you think you can't be because you don't have enough faith, this man gives you hope. If you think you can't be because your situation is a consequence of your own bad decisions... Okay, this man gives you hope. If you lived so long without being healed, perhaps, that you think it's just not going to happen. This man gives you hope because he went 37 years, 364 days in exactly that situation. Resigned even to the fact it's not going to happen. And then, this day, everything changed. If you think you just hadn't been good enough, grateful enough, worthy enough, this man gives you hope. If you are helpless and unworthy, the deliverance of Jesus is even more glorious. You are a good candidate to receive it today. He's not governed by human limitations at all. And I know for a fact that there are people who, who get snagged on that fact. They have a hard time believing that, that Jesus can or will really do for him what they want him to do that, because of somehow their own limitations that they bring to the situation. And I am telling you with every bit of confidence on the authority of the word of God that it ain't so. It is not so. You, your, those limitations I've named, you add some to it. Whatever you got, go ahead and throw it on the pile. Because it means nothing in terms of what he's able or willing to do. He's not governed by that. Number two, he's not regulated by false religion and self-righteousness. 
the latter part of verse 9 is the turning point in this narrative because it says, now this day was the Sabbath. And if you've read the Gospels, you know you're going, uh-oh. <laughs> Not so much that Jesus is in trouble, but I know what's coming. I know what's coming. And the entire second half of the passage is about this dispute with the Jewish leaders over violation of the Sabbath laws. They tell the man quite plainly in verse 10, uh, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, this is actually a perfect example of the way the Pharisees had added to the law of God. Because there's nothing in the Bible that actually prohibited carrying a bed per se on the Sabbath. But they um, sort of stretched the rules to be, they drew the line a little further back just to be sure nobody came too close to violating the law. And they did things like prohibiting the carrying of a bed. That probably came out of an overly rigid application of verses like Nehemiah 13, 15, uh, which says, in those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day uh, when they sold food. And then Jeremiah uh, 17 verses 21 and 22 says, thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem and do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. So what's at issue here? Well, the, the, the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, the law uh, prohibited ordinary work. And the burdens that he's speaking of in Nehemiah and Jeremiah are related to, associated with that ordinary work. Right? They're, they're, they're wine and grapes and figs and all of those kinds of things that they're taking to do commerce with, loading the burden on the donkey and going into the city to do business. That's what's being prohibited. And these scholars have added to the list, you can't carry your bed. I mean, think of how just utterly nonsensical that is. Because what are you going to do if you happen to be healed on the Sabbath? Just lay there to the next day? And walk away and come back and get your bed tomorrow? I mean, it's just ridiculous. But I, I believe that the primary reason G Jesus healed this man and only this man on this occasion was because it was the Sabbath. Of all the other purposes he had in that and the purposes he had for this particular man, one of the things he was out to do was to make an issue out of this very point. He could have healed him the day before, right? He could have gone to the pool the day before and cleaned the whole place out. He could have waited to the next day. He healed this man on that day because it was the Sabbath. Because one of his chief purposes was to confront the false religion that kept people in captivity. The very kind of captivity that he came to deliver them out of. 
if he had decided, like I said, that he didn't just, he just didn't want to make a fuss, you know, oh, I don't want to upset the Pharisees, no reason to get into all that. He could have done that a dozen different ways. Or surely, or surely there was somebody in that pool, a multitude of people at that pool. Surely there was somebody that didn't have a bed they would have to carry. Maybe just a blind man, right? He could just make, he could heal the blind man, send him on his way. At least he wouldn't have a, a bed to carry and then the Pharisees wouldn't see him and everything would be okay as far as that was concerned. He didn't want everything to be okay as far as that was concerned. He's putting his finger right on the sore spot of false religion and self-righteousness because he is not regulated by it. He wasn't then and he's not now. He had no regard for their spiritual authority. He had no regard for their rules. I mean, they get all in a twist. And he's just not bothered by it at all. He's like, I just do, I don't, you know, I don't live underneath that authority. And like, I don't, I just don't put myself into those categories. Those are, those are your categories, not my categories. He demonstrated he's Lord of the Sabbath because he is Lord, because he is just Lord. And he says down there at the end, my father's working on the Sabbath. I'm working on the Sabbath. That's pretty much the message there. He's Lord of the Sabbath because he is Lord. And he had just performed an, an act of divine creation when he said, take up your bed and walk. He could have just as easily said, uh, let there be muscle. You know, just like in the beginning, let there be light and all the other created things. He could have just as easily said that to that man's legs. Let there be muscle. That's had the effect of that. Take up your bed and walk. He spoke fully functional legs into existence right there. And that man comes walking by the Jewish leaders. And all they can see is that he's carrying his bed on the wrong day. And see, that's laughable, except for all the ways in which that applies to us, looking at all the wrong things and missing what Jesus is doing right in our midst. They've missed the fact that a man has been set free from misery and hopelessness. They don't care about that. I mean, they don't even notice. Do you see that? They've got their clipboard out, measuring all the wrong things. Missing the fact that the Messiah is walking through the temple that they are policing there. That a man who hasn't walked in 38 years is carrying his bed because he can walk now. And they're concerned with the fact that he's doing it on the Sabbath. They are the complete opposite of helpless. And don't receive any help from Jesus. The irony is they are helplessly self-righteous. Right? I mean, they, they are helpless people. They are needy people. They just have no sense of it whatsoever. Because they're just so uh, overcome with, thoroughly dipped in the dye of, self-righteousness, and Jesus is entirely unregulated by that kind of foolishness 
and self-righteousness. And again, the, the, the mistake that we would make is to think that once upon a time, there were self-righteous people like that. And thank God, he didn't make me like them. Right, but you can, you can imagine how this plays out. I mean, I, I, I can imagine this group of people, because you know, it happens more with a group of self-righteous people than it does individual self-righteous people. Because they like to prove to one another how self-righteous they are. I mean, not, not, are they just, not, are they, not only are they just saturated with it, but when they have an opportunity to show others how self-righteous they, they are, then it really comes out. So you've got the group of them. You can imagine them sitting there with that man and go, well, what do we do now? Well, just lay down right there on your mat. You're not even supposed to be healed today, for goodness sake. Just lay down right there and wait till tomorrow, and then you can carry it off. And you know what? At the next, at the next Sanhedrin meeting, I'm going to bring this up. I'm going to put a motion on the floor. We're just going to close the pool on the Sabbath day. We won't have any more of this nonsense. That'll take care of it, by golly. See, that's not once upon a time kind of stuff. That's not once upon a time kind of stuff. You have religious people blinded by their own self-righteousness. And one of the sure signs somebody is infected with that is they always see the fault in other people and never in themselves. If you never have a sense of your own helplessness and unworthiness, you might be in that category of somebody at risk of self-righteousness. Your prayer may need to be, God put me in touch with my own helplessness. If you don't have a sense ever of your own weakness, of your own sin, of your own neediness of the grace of God, to really live by pure mercy. God, there is nothing about me that deserves it. Not only do I know I don't deserve it, I know I undeserve it. And I just undeserved it again. If you don't ever have a sense of that about yourself, you might need to ask the Holy Spirit to put you back in touch with a sense of that. Because you have not outgrown your need for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And if you've lost your memory of it, he may need to recover it for you. Because he's not at all regulated by that self-righteousness. He, he, he doesn't live in those categories. He'll walk right on past it. Except when he pokes it. Just to make us aware of the fact that it's there. And even that, for his people, is an act of grace. To remind us, to point out the fact. That there is a need, even if we've lost uh, a sight of our neediness. But this is right where they are. And, 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 and of course it wraps up. With this summary in these last few verses. That they're out to get him. Because not only does he break the Sabbath. But he's even equated himself with God now. And now they're out to kill him. These godly people. These godly people, 
out to kill the Messiah and harass a man who's walking now for the first time in 38 years. Absolutely blinded. But Christ marches on. He continues to do his work of helping the helpless and unworthy for his own good purposes and glory. And so the question for us now in, in relation to this message really in, and in any given moment on any day in any occasion, how does Christ want to be glorified in your life? In your circumstances, in the circumstances you're praying even, that he'll change right now as immediately as he did for this man. The ones that you're working as hard as you can to change yourself. The one that you're pretty sure he ought to want to change. Those circumstances. How is it that even as you remain in them, that he wants to be glorified? And delight in the radiance of his glory. Do you feel helpless and unworthy? You feel like you brought it on yourself. It's gone on too long. You don't have enough faith. And so on. Well, you're, you're the perfect candidate to receive from him today. What perhaps you've given up on even receiving. And if you don't feel a sense of helplessness and unworthiness again, perhaps... You or I need the Holy Spirit to get us back in touch with a sense of our own need because his power is made perfect in weakness. And we, when we discover the reality of our own weakness, the reality of our own need for his power, that's where we'll discover it and see it most glorified. Let's pray. God, you are great and glorious, and you are good all the time. And Lord, I thank you so much for, for accounts like this one in the scriptures. And I know there are others where Jesus did go through Galilee, healing every uh, kind of sickness and every kind of disease. And there were uh, plenty of cases where he said to people, your faith has made you well. And I know there are all kinds of varieties of how he related to people on this earth. But I thank you for stories like this one that say that even to those who are utterly helpless and utterly unworthy of help in any doing of their own, that to, to them, Jesus proves himself to be gracious and merciful, a helper in time of need. Thank you, Lord, for that. And I do pray, God, that you would today, today, in a life-changing way, would you meet Somebody at their point of need, Lord, where they are, uh, where they're beyond even, even hoping anymore, really, that in their lives personally, that you'll do that thing that they most earnestly pray for. 
Or would you meet somebody right at that point of need today just because you are gracious and you glorify yourself in doing so? And Lord, would you, would you penetrate others? Would you penetrate hardened, calloused hearts who have lost their sense of what it is that you're doing in the lives of people who have their eyes on the wrong things and are missing Jesus in the room, working in real ways in the lives of people. Lord, would you, would you touch us at the place of our own self-righteousness and pride and false religion, Lord, and obliterate it altogether? God, would you move us or move us out of the way that you might have your way in the lives of people that you want to reach. Do as you will by your spirit in the lives of us one by one. In Christ's name, amen.